welcome to the Mean Lady Talking Podcast, the tough-talking, advice-giving show by the not-really-mean, mean lady, Susan J. Elliott. Good day, everybody. This is Susan Elliott, host of the Mean Lady Talking Podcast, and welcome to episode 83. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a couple of things. It is November 13th, and the registration form for the holiday boot camp is up. I've sent to people who've asked for it. If you asked for it and didn't get it, please email me. You can email me at susanje1119 at gmail.com. You can try susan at gettingpastyourbreakup.com, but for some reason, I don't know why, on Bluehost, it sometimes gets stuck in the server. I don't know why. Anyway, um, a lot of times people have sent me email. Can you do this topic? Can you do that topic? And don't feel like you're going to bug me if you ask me again for it. There's no problem. I have a list of things. If you want to make absolutely sure your topic is on that list, just email me. I don't feel it's intrusive. I don't feel like you're bugging me. Feel free to email me and I'll give you an update. One thing that I got a lot of email about is ambivalence. And I get ambivalence for different phases of the recovery, different phases of the program. When you first break up, you usually have a lot of big, big emotions after the shock goes away. And after you stop feeling numb or or in denial, like this can't really be happening, you tend to get into very big feelings. And I talk in the workbook about how to do grief sessions and self-care sessions. And that really is an overview of how the program works. You get the bad stuff out, you get your grieving out, you journal, you talk to people, you have your crying sessions, you know, you do what you need to do to get your grief out. And then you do your self-care. You do, again, journaling and talking to people, doing me nights, doing affirmations. Affirmations are really, really important right out of the gate. And you do self-care, hobbies, interests, friends, when you start feeling like it. But when you look at the work, when I talk in the workbook about the grief session. And giving yourself sort of a Pavlovian signal that, okay, this grief session is over and now I'm going into self-care or this grief session is over. Now I'm going into my day. That's how you manage those big feelings and working through the grief. And Freud said, and I I believe that I talk about this in in the grief podcast, Freud said that all human relationships contain ambivalence, no matter what it is. And many times, you know, he was talking about deceased people, we feel like it's not okay to be ambivalent, to, to acknowledge the fact that there were things about this person that we don't like, or things about them that we might have had to address if they lived longer or whatever. And it's really important to understand that All human relationships contain ambivalence. There's good and there's bad. But then there's the internal ambivalence where you am not sure what you're feeling. It doesn't have anything to do with your thinking about this person or anything has to do with your thinking about that person. Sometimes after being in grieving for quite a while, all of a sudden you don't know how you feel. You you say, I think I'm sort of ambivalent. And then you say, what's wrong with me? And the answer is, there's nothing wrong with you. I have a quote from David Seabury who said, ambivalence 
is a collision between thought and feeling. And sometimes they collide and it spews out numbness. Not really sure what it is you're feeling. And ambivalence is a very real phase of the grief process. It's not separate from the grief process. It's part of the grief process. It's also a phase in every single existing relationship that you have or that you've had. It's a human emotion that we tend to ignore because it doesn't usually bring about a great deal of concern. However, when we're trying to end a relationship or we're trying to grieve a relationship or we're out there dating, the ambivalence might race to the front and take over. Our hearts say we want something, but our mind says, nah, or we know that someone's good for us, but we just don't feel it. And we've talked about it you know, on several podcasts and in the Facebook group about the chemistry and all that blah, blah. And sometimes we don't even know what it is. We're like, I don't know. They don't do it for me. Well, what is it? What are you talking about? And if we're struggling because we have feelings for someone who we know is not good for us or who has not treated us well, it can be crazy making to try to just sit with those feelings. It's like, I, I care about this person. I like this person. I love this person. But I know this person's not good for me. I know this person is doesn't want me. Number one requirement wants to be with me. And you can say like, the only thing that's wrong with this person is they don't want to be with me. Okay, well, that's a big only. That's a big if only. But sometimes what we do is we corral our feelings. Because we feel a lot of affection towards somebody that we also feel a lot of antipathy towards. Like, I don't really want this person because I know this person's no good for me. This person doesn't treat me the way I want to be treated. I wish they did, though. Damn it, I wish they did. Why does it have to be that difficult? Why? We have to sit with the feelings sometimes and we have to figure out like, well, what, you know, it's okay. You know, and I've talked about this. I'm doing the attachment group right now. We talk about this, that one of the ladies was at the, at a gathering and different people were there and she spotted this guy from far away and she kind of became kind of interested in who he was, what he was like, blah, blah, blah. But as she got closer to him, he started giving out those bad vibes. Those bad vibes that she's learned bad vibes because of the work that she's done. But she knows like, oh, like before this work, I would I would have gone out with him. And I tell people, and I probably have said it on this podcast, I can still see that. I can still say, you know what? 30 years ago, I would have been right there with that guy. I mean, I think I, I, think I mentioned this on, on one of the podcasts that I was watching a jail show. I think it was 60 Days In, you know, where they, they, they put regular people into uh, a county to see, you know, who's bringing drugs in and who's doing this and who's doing that. But there was this one guy where he was like this, he was like the head honcho criminal. Like the, they always have like the pod boss. So he's a pod boss. He's this young, good looking guy, not bigger than a lot of the guys in there. But I was thinking, oh man, 30 years ago, like I, that, that would have been who I was with. And it makes me shiver. And Melody Beatty said, you can still feel a twinge when you pass the froggy palm, but that doesn't mean you have to jump in. But many times we're either like, oh my God, I can't believe I feel like that. Or we shut it down and we feel nothing. And what we are feeling is really ambiguous 
ambivalent. It's a collision between a thought and a feeling. We have a feeling like, oh, I'd like to be over there. And then our thought is like, oh, that's bad. That's really bad. You do not want to go over there. We need to know that the feelings that we have are remnants of the past. And many times when we're breaking up a relationship, the feelings that we have are remnants of the past when it was good. And the feelings are remnants of the fantasies that we had that we're not ready to part with. The if onlys, the even those. If only they would turn around and see how good we could be together. The ambivalence is the I don't want to shut this off, not yet. The feelings are the remnants sitting in the void where no one knew is yet. We're not ready for someone new, but we're not ready to let go of the old. And you can't be ready for the new until you let go of the old. And then you build your life in between and you figure out where you went wrong. And then you're ready for the new. And sometimes when something is new and we're not feeling it, quote unquote, but we might know that this person is good for us, we might shut the door on it too soon. The it feeling is something we have confused as love, and it might be nothing of the sort. Someone might take our breath away because they're dangerous or unavailable or because they represent people from our past that we want to finally win over. The head over heels feeling is not always love. In fact, most times it's not. Love, true love is quieter than that. And I've said this over and over again. And I've talked recently about, I was once in love with a guy who made my heart pound and my knees shake when he walked into the room. I never experienced that. And I had been doing this recovery for several years when I experienced this. And the end of the relationship took months and it was one of the most painful things I ever experienced because the heart pounding wasn't love, that the knees being weak wasn't love. It was my sense of danger and the sense of his unavailability. I always say that when I met Michael, I liked him. I can't say he blew me away, but I liked and I fell into a feeling that I had never known before. And that feeling was this person is for me. It was love, but it felt differently than anything I had experienced up until that time. In other words, all the heart flopping and dizzy feelings had nothing to do with love. I had swung from the chandeliers and had fireworks and chemistry with a whole bunch of crazy people. People that I wouldn't let walk my dog because they couldn't be trusted. But I knew that I could have this crazy, crazy, crazy off the walls, physical connection. And I went for it many times. And it was stupid. When I met Michael, I wasn't ambivalent. I was happy with him and everything he did because it surprised me because it was good and it was nice. And it was about how he felt about me. He wasn't boring. He was funny as hell. He was cute as hell. Everything he did was just who Michael was. And I knew it from the day I met him. I knew like this guy is exactly who he says he is. And he knew that about me. And he said, that's what he fell in love with the very first night he met me. He said, I love you because you are who you say you are. And on our 10th wedding anniversary, I asked him again, why do you love me? Because you are who you say you are. He was funny. He was cute. And he was right for me. And he was true. And he was honest. But if I'd still been chasing the heart pounding, I would have given up the love of my life. And over the years, his consistency and his loyalty made me fall in love deeper and deeper. He was there for me for better and worse, for richer and poorer in sickness and in health. We did our 
we did our marriage vows and we did them well. And when I met him, he didn't trigger any insecurity, which felt kind of dull to me. He didn't trigger insecurity because he was the most solid person I'd ever met. And I had to realize that the feeling of security was soft and nice and wonderful. And the feeling of insecurity can masquerade as excitement and it's anything but exciting to be in yet another relationship to make you insecure. In my relationship with Michael, I was never insecure. And the feelings that I've had of abandonment my entire life went away. But I had to come to that relationship whole and I had to come to that relationship hearty and I had to come to that relationship knowing that I needed to sit with my feelings and figure them out. But feelings are not always the greatest barometer of what we should or should not be doing. Listen to your brain and your thoughts and figure out whether this person is good for you or not. Take your feelings with a grain of salt. Don't let them run your life. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to your head and your logical, practical side. Take Take ambivalence with a grain of salt and know that if you're trying to get out of a relationship, it will exist, but that doesn't mean you're on a wrong path. It means you're human. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that one of the things we're talking about in the attachment group is doing the work. The first part of healing attachment wounds is healing your childhood wound. And we've been talking about our parents and we've been talking about this thing and and things that come up is feeling sorry for your parents and having trouble when you've had difficult relationships with your parents and maybe they've been abusive, but on the other side, you feel sorry for them. And and how do you work with that? And that's a form of ambivalence, but it's also a form of big feelings on both sides. When I was a kid, they were building a civil complex around the block from our house. And it was this big empty lot in the Bronx. And the first building that they built was a fire station. This fire station is on Story Avenue and Crows near Fatelli. And when we first moved there, it was just an empty and it was just an empty lot. And then they they moved all of this earth and big cinder blocks and everything. And in at I've talked about the fact that my parents took in strays, strays all the time, from hamsters to children and and people like adults. We had many adults living with us. I didn't know who these people were. My brother came home from Vietnam with a guy that he was from Texas and he didn't want to go home to his family. We didn't know why. I mean, I was a kid, so... I wasn't sure what was going on there. But this guy, Wayne, was really good looking and just came back from Vietnam with my brother. And I didn't know if they were a couple. I mean, that you didn't even think about those things then. But truly, I couldn't understand why, why, why Wayne wouldn't go home. But my family brought him in. Somebody got thrown out of the house. My family brought him in. You know, I was one of many foster children. But we took dogs and cats and animals and all kinds of things. And anytime something happened in the neighborhood, we had a 16-year-old guy and he found this animal under a car. He didn't even know what it was. He did not know what this animal was, but it was hurt. Somebody had carved an X in its back. He brought it to, to our house. It was a guinea pig. Her name was Cleo. And we had her for like 10, 15 years. I mean, she lived like forever. And I didn't know what Cleo did. I mean, she just hung out in a cage and and ate lettuce and went weed, weed, weed all the time. You know, when it was time for her to eat, like you, she would hear the crinkle of the lettuce and start going weed, weed, weed. And that was it. I mean, she didn't do any tricks. She didn't go on a hamster wheel. She didn't do anything. She just like hung out. So, and people would just bring us the stray animals. So there was this stray dog in the neighborhood and it was a female and she was in heat and all the dogs were going after her. And my my parents, we already had two dogs and a couple of cats and the dog was a stray and cats were, were strays. Everybody was a stray and they weren't really 
getting along. We had the cats in the basement, the dogs upstairs. We were trying to slowly integrate them. And and still, my parents are trying to get this dog, you know, this dog and he, they're trying to get her out of the street. We get, couldn't get her. I mean, she just kept running and running and running. She was like, she was probably like, she had pit bull looking tendency. She wasn't full pit bull, but she had like the boxy face. She looked like, like a a pit bull, I don't know, something mix, but she's a sweet looking dog. And one day she disappeared. She got pregnant. You could see like she got pregnant. And one day she disappeared and the boys were playing in the lots where they were doing the construction because they built the firehouse and then they're going to build the police house. The police had the police precinct and so the boys playing in the lots and they saw the 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 dog go in there in, in the in the rocks where the bulldozers were coming and the mama dog that's what we wound up calling her the mama dog went in there and she had puppies and she went behind all these boulders now the bulldozers are coming my mother, who's like five feet tall, like 90 pounds, is standing in front of the bulldozer with her arms spread going, you cannot do this. There is a dog in there having puppies. My mother was going to take out like all the construction guys. I mean, she's screaming at them. And my mother wasn't type do something like that, except, you know, in a situation like this. My father worked two jobs, but he I remember him not going to work over this dog. And so we waited a while. We tried to get her. I mean, she was wedged all the way in. I mean, these big, big boulders, you know, were, were on this side. And she was wedged all the way in this, like she had made a cave. And she was wedged all the way in, like nobody could get in there. So after we heard her having puppies, which you could hear the puppies, my mother took one of the smaller boys and sent him in after the puppies. And he gets the puppies out. And the puppies were only a couple of days old. He gets the puppies out. And they're trying to get the mama dog out. And she's growling and she's snarling. And they've taken all the puppies. She had seven puppies. Three of them were dead. So we took the four live puppies home. I remember we put them under lamps and we had blankets. And my mother was bottle feeding them, eyedropper feeding them. And the next day, my father is like... Now, my father was like... Him and... I've always said that him and Michael were built like exactly the same. My father was like five foot seven... He didn't have any hips or ass. He had like a barrel chest and he was like, had husky shoulders. Michael was, Michael was built exactly the same way. And I've said a lot of times that Michael, Michael had my father's good traits without my father's bad traits. Michael reminded me of my father a lot. And this was one of the, one of the times. So my father goes down to where the mama dog is and he's not leaving without this dog. He like picks up one of these boulders And he's like a pretty small guy. He picks up one of these boulders and he tosses it. And then he goes in there by himself because he didn't want any of the kids to try to go in and get her. He goes in there by himself, comes out with her, wraps her in his arms. And I watched him. We, we, We live like three blocks from where this happened. But that's how how much people came to us over like the dog had the puppies and like you had to do something. I mean, they they, they passed seven, eight, nine, ten neighbors to come to our house and tell us about the dog having puppies. So that's who we were. We were the rescuers and the and the thing. So my father got the got the dog. So we have the dog and her her four puppies and until they're ready to go. And then my parents take her to the vet and she's all torn up because she was a stray and she was just, you know, they just made it with her over and over and over again. She was in really poor shape. She needed operations that they didn't think they could really save her. So we wound up putting her down. We wound up getting rid of um, 
not getting rid of, but we, we wound up getting uh, three of the puppies adopted. And then the fourth puppy we had adopted out, but he had gone to a house where there was another dog that didn't like the new puppy. And when he came back to us, he had little bite marks in his head. And he was my dog. He became my dog. And that was my dog, Noodle, who was like the best dog in the world. And I have a friend who never left the Bronx. She was my best childhood friend. And she always says that she's had dogs all of her life. And her favorite dog in her entire life was my dog, Noodle. Noodle was a great, great dog. And sweetest, sweetest thing. And I mean, he looked like a pit. He looked like a vicious pit bull. And he was boxy and he was gray. And he would he would run at the door. And somebody was at the door. He would run at the door. You would see this dog like charging at you from the door. And then when he got to the door, his mouth would would make almost a complete O. And he would go, woo, 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 woo. Like he had like the most high pitched mark in the world. Like nobody was afraid of him. He was the sweetest, sweetest dog. It was wonderful, wonderful dog. So anyway, when my parents would be abusive, abandonment, and I was going through my my recovery stuff and I was, you know, looking at all this other stuff, these images, my mother in front of those bulldozers, my father walking that dog that was ready to bite his head off and he just kept petting her. I don't think that dog was ever pet in her entire life. She was vicious by the time when he pulled her out of those rocks, she was like biting at him and he started petting her head and he walked the three blocks with her in his arm, petting her head. And by the time she got to our house, her head was on his shoulder. Like they had been together like her whole life. Whenever I did work around my parents, you know, about the things they didn't do for me or the times they abandoned me or whatever it is they did. Those images would just kill me, would just kill me. And I would not be able to go further. I would be like, I mean, and this is why when my father died, when my mother died, I mean, people thought they were saints, absolutely thought they were saints. I mean, they did everything for everyone. They were nominated as foster parents of the year. The church had something in their name. People, I mean, I remember my mother had a tenant and she had rented, she had, she had bought a two family house and she had rented to this couple upstairs and they got divorced while they were, while they were there. And my mother would leave her door open so that when the, the, the woman came in and the woman was really distraught over the breakup, you know, he was cheating on her and she had to ask him to leave and she was really, really distraught over the breakup. And this was years before I knew anything about breakups, but my mother would leave her door open and she would make dinner. And when the woman would come in at night, my mother would say, did you eat today, Diane? You want to have something to eat? When my mother passed away, like 10 years after, after that, that incident. Diane was like, her knees were buckling at, at the way. She was beside herself. And she was just like falling apart over my mother's death. And when I finally got to ambivalence with my parents, it was that collision of thought and feeling. Like, I know there were things they did wrong. And I know that they should not have adopted me. They just shouldn't have. But they were the house of the strays parents had lost another foster child that they had wanted to adopt and how they just weren't going to give up on adopting me. But that other girl stayed a little adorable child 
and I became a sullen teenager. And the message that I got from my parents was that I wasn't grateful. You know, the dogs were grateful, the cats were grateful, Cleo was grateful. Yeah, I mean, she was a little noisy with the lettuce, but, you know, she's pretty grateful, I guess. I mean, she was a guinea pig. It was hard to tell. But I mean, really, it was like everything in the house was grateful except me. If I was grateful, I wouldn't have been a teenager. I wouldn't have caused all that strife. But when you're coming out of a relationship, you have to think about, you have to think about those wonderful moments where you could look at somebody and go, oh my God, who does that? Like that was so wonderful. And then you have to line them up with the person that wasn't there for you. It doesn't want to be there for you now or is doing, you know, X, Y, or Z. And sometimes when you put those two images together, they collide and the result is ambivalence. And you're like, I don't know how I feel. Of course you don't. How the hell can you know how you feel with all of that? So what I usually suggest is, you know, when you do the parent inventory, do it with the good images. And when you do the letting go letters, say, thank you so much. I mean, I couldn't thank my parents enough for giving me a love of animals. My biological mother didn't have any pets, as far as I knew. She could barely take care of her kids. But my parents instilled in me a ferocious love of animals, a ferocious love of animals. And I love that we were a house of strays. I loved that people brought the animals to us. So the animals just came by themselves. We had cats that were indoor outdoor cats. And when we lived upstate, you open a kitchen window, the cats would jump up on the kitchen window. You'd open the kitchen window, the cats would come in. And one night we opened the kitchen window, this cat came in. We're like, what cat is that? (laughs) It's like this stray cat just came on in and stayed, you know? And he was... You know, he was quite welcome to go in and out, but he had just stayed with us. When my mother moved, she took him with her. I mean, she was like, what am I going to do with that? When she lived in Providence, there was a guy in the corner, like his dog was always out in the rain and the snow and then this and that. And when my mother moved, my mother used to feed him. My mother used to put him, give him shelter under the porch and stuff. And when she moved, she took him. And when the guy would see my brother, he would say, I know your mother stole my dog. And, and my brother would just look at him like, yeah, so what do you, what do you want? You're not getting him back. And he was a sweet little dog. You know, he was just a sweet little dog. And I love that my parents were like that. But I hated other things they did. And I had to work through it all. And I had to not let the sympathy stop me from doing the work where I acknowledge the abuse and the abandonment and the things they didn't do right. And yes, there are reasons, but there are no excuses. My parents had really difficult childhoods. My father went to work in the sixth grade. My mother was in a a very abusive orphanage. That stuff comes later. You can't heal your childhood wounds. And you can't stop trying to win the struggle over your parents until you acknowledge what it was that was done to you. So if you feel ambivalent, toward anybody or anything. Just let it be okay. It's a feeling and a thought in collision. And you can tease it all out. Sometimes we need a break from all the work that we're doing. And even the self-care feels like work. So our mind zips in and gives us some ambivalence. Like, here you go. Now you don't really care about very much, do you? Okay, fine, good. So don't shoot on yourself if you're feeling ambivalent. And know that all human relationships have ambivalence. 
before, during, and after they're done, and that you can feel ambivalent toward an ex-relationship, toward a new relationship, towards dating, towards your parents, towards your siblings, towards your this, towards your that. And it's like a time out. And just let it be okay. And then go back to the work that you need to do when you need to do it. And don't let some of the better qualities of anybody, whether it's your parents or your ex or whoever, stand in your way of recovering from that particular relationship and the wrongs that were done to you and the lessons you need to learn. Don't let those things stand in your way because when you're a good person, and I've yet to meet a client who's not a good person, I've yet to meet a client or a boot camp or a group member who's not inherently a good person. Those are the people that come to me, not the banana heads of the world, not the narcissists of the world. The good people of the world tends to come to me. And many times when they come to me, it's like, yeah, but he or she did this or he or she did that, you know, all these wonderful, wonderful things. But yes, they also did X, Y, or Z, which wasn't so great. And where are they now? So hold on to what you need to hold on to. And when you do your letting go letters, whether it's after the relationship inventory, after the parent inventory, make sure you acknowledge the good part and the bad part. And you don't let the good part keep you from healing through the bad part. And don't look at ambivalence as, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. Look at it as, okay, well, now we're doing this today. You can do it. Again, guys, if you've written to me and you suggested a subject and you haven't heard it, feel free to send me another email. Honestly, you're not bugging me. I want to hear from you and I will, I will rest. I will have you rest assured that your subject is on the list. So thank you guys very much. Talk to you soon. Susan Elliott, Elaine Talking Podcast. Take care all. Bye-bye.